So with, with saying that, and move on to, to the message this morning. We started last week, we started a new series called Characters of the Crucifixion. And um, this is the second message. And this week we're looking at Mary Magdalene. And, and there's a lot of, of interest, there's a lot of, um, there's like a, a, a growing amount of interest, I guess, in Mary Magdalene because of the show The Chosen. If you've ever watched in the TV show that's coming out, it's, that's come out on, on the gospel and on the life of Jesus, they, they've really put a lot of emphasis on Mary Magdalene. This woman that that followed Jesus, that essentially was a disciple. Now, in the gospel, we don't have as much said about Mary as we might have about Peter or James or John or Andrew. There's more said about these because they were the ones that went out and established the church. But we still have this character, this this person. And her life, what we do have about her in the gospel, centers around the crucifixion. It centers around what took place in the resurrection, in, in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it, it's, it's really, I think, impactful to study her experience of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and I think we'll, we'll learn a lot from it. So we're going to jump into that here in a second. Before we do, I'm just going to open us up with a word of prayer, and, and then we'll... Dive right in. Father God, as we study your word this morning, I, I, I pray that it comes alive in our hearts. Emphasize to us that this isn't some obscure text. It's not a textbook. It's, it's real. It's historical. It is one place. And don't, don't let us minimize that, God, as we study it, as, as we memorize it as we cite it. Don't let it just become words that are fleeting. This is your word. This is what you have to say for us. And so God, as we study it this morning, as we see the life of Mary in in light of, of the crucifixion and resurrection of your son, let it move us. Help us to see ourselves in Mary. To be impacted the same way she was impacted by Jesus' death and resurrection. So God, speak this morning through your word. Speak through me. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You know, as we get older, I think we, we realize that nothing stays the same. You know, we, we change over time. And I'm not just talking about the fact that you look in the mirror and all of a sudden you see more wrinkles or that you, you have a trouble, you have more trouble walking in the morning or or and I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about all that, although there definitely is physical change as you get older. I'm talking about interests, the hobbies, what excites us, what brings us joy. Those things change as well. You know, what you once were excited about when you were younger, what once brought you joy when you were younger, isn't always the same as you get older. And, and for me, what I think about is, is concerts. And if any of you know me, I don't get excited by concerts. They're just, they're loud. They hurt your ears. You pay way too much money for food when you go there. You pay way too much money for a ticket. There's a lot of crowd, a lot of people. You got to bump elbows with people. It's just a miserable experience. I, I do not like concerts. 
I, I get the same thing for a $10 subscription to Spotify as I would get from a concert, in my opinion. Um, I remember a few years back, Isabella wanted to go see, uh, I think it was the Jonas Brothers in concert or something on their big reunion tour. And I said, there is not any chance in the world that I'm going with you to that concert. You have at it. I am not going to that, let alone because it's the Jonas Brothers, but also because I just don't like to be in concerts. But I, I, believe it or not, that was not how I was when I was little. I loved concerts in middle school and high school. Any chance that, that we had where to a festival, like we had this festival called King's Fat, and Christian bands from all over the country to an uh, um, amusement park there in Virginia. And I loved it. I would be there, and I would listen to every band, and, and I would be excited, and, and I'd go to Winter Jam every year. We would go to T.I.Y., which always had a real big band, and, and I I, I would love the excitement. I would, I would love the loud music. And <laughs> now it just makes me miserable. Yeah. It's funny how over time, what once brought us joy, what once brought us excitement, changes. And, and sometimes that's because we change, but other times it's because it becomes mundane. It, it becomes less exciting over time. Now, just, just think back to the things that we used to find an amounts of joy, whether it was a hobby or, or a desire or a sports team that you followed, regardless of what it was. Think now, does that thing still bring you that same level of joy that it once did? Now, this isn't to say, you know, I, I don't, I won't go and sit at a concert. I won't go and listen to music somewhere. But the joy that I found in it when I was young was far more than today. So what is the root cause of this? What causes our joy that was once exciting, that was once at an unprecedented level, to become routine, to become mundane, to, to just be ordinary? What is it that causes us to lose this excitement that we have in something over time? How, how is it that we can find satisfaction and joy and something one day, and, and the next, seemingly, it'd be ordinary and, and, and mundane. Now, this question that we're talking about joy and excitement and, and hobbies and, and things of that nature is going to play into the context of faith and how our faith might, when we come to faith, we might be excited and joyful and, and exuberant over it. But over time, that faith might seem to fade or become routine, or mundane, or simply ordinary. Why does that happen? How is it that one day we can come to Christ and be at an unprecedented level of commitment and excitement, and in the next find ourselves going through the motions? And I think the life of Mary Magdalene has a lot to speak about that. And like I said before, there's, there's not a lot of background information on Mary. We don't have this excerpt of, of how she got called to come to Jesus. We just really have one single verse on her. It says in Luke chapter 8, Afterward, as he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had, healed, who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, called Magdalene, seven demons had come from her. 
Joanna, the life of Shusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. Well, that's what you get about Mary. That's her background information. You find two things. She's from a place called Magdala, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And she was healed, by seven, healed from seven demons. So what we get from that, um, Magdala, when translated into Aramaic, loosely means tower. Um, and, and in that area, in the Tiberius area, where, where they're traveling, if you cross-reference that with any location that has to do with tower, there's really only one, which is Tower of the Fish. The Tower of the Fish. It was a fisherman's village. It was a place where it was poor. There wasn't a, a lot of prosperity there. It was just a place where there was hard working class people. That would have been where she was from. Now, if we learn anything from modern days, poverty can oftentimes breed desperation, could breed wickedness, could, could, can breed things that you start to desire that aren't of God. Now, if you look at statistics in the world today, the most impoverished places are usually the most drug-ridden places because we're, those people desperately try to cling to something. It makes sense then that Mary would find something to cling to, that, that she becomes inhabited by these evil spirits, by these things that, that she had, these, these entities, these demonic spirits that took hold of her. And that's the next her is that she had seven. It wasn't just one. It wasn't just two. It, it was seven spirits, seven demonic influences had its grip on her, had hold of her. And almost in passing, it tells us they came out of her. You know, and, and you find something like that in the Gospels, and you, and you read it almost in passing, and you have to do a double take and come back, and oh my goodness, she had seven demons in her. They came out of her. It's just in passing that is mentioned in the Gospels. But I think the reason why it's almost just in passing is, is because we all know the supernatural power of Jesus at this point. What we're seeing here is his desire to bring brokenness into his kingdom, to bring forgiveness into his kingdom. And, and the reason we see that here is because the mention of Mary... Her background comes following this really important parable, this really important event that took place in, in 736 through 50. So here's what's taking place. Just scroll up. If, you, if you're on a phone, I guess you scroll. If you're using a Bible, you just look backwards. Uh, it, it says, <laughs> yeah, some of you have to say scroll now because you know, that's what we, we use apps. Verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. A woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, if he were a prophet, would know 
what kind of woman this is. Who is touching him? She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. Which of one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now this parable, this event, immediately precedes what we hear about Mary. Now some scholars think that Mary is the woman in this event. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the point is true. Mary had been restored from a massive pit. Last week we talked about, about pits that we put ourselves in, that we dig, that, that we, we all have these pits that we find ourselves in, that we just can't figure out how to climb out of. Mary is the epitome of having a pit that she can't climb out of. Possessed by demons. There, how do you get out of that? You don't. There is no way you can crawl yourself, that you can pull yourself, that you can find a way to get yourself out of this pit that Mary was in. She had a lot to be restored from, but she was restored. And out of that restoration, according to what this parable says, what Jesus is teaching Simon, because she had been restored from much, she had much love to give, much devotion to give. Mary's restoration is the epitome of what it means of having much forgiveness, producing much love. That's what her life was. Her life was being restored by Jesus, by being restored from this demonic influence, this demonic grip that was over her life, and being reset. Now, what did she do with her life after that? After having the grip of evil take hold of your life, and then all of a sudden you're released from that, what do you go on to do? Mary went on to love and serve Jesus wholeheartedly. Non-stop. That's what happened with her. And, and, you know, how do we know that's the case? Well, when we turn to John's gospel, when we turn to John chapter 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, fast forward now, we'd, this event in Luke would have taken place somewhere in the middle of Jesus' ministry, or maybe even earlier on in Jesus' ministry. Now we fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry. Remember, Mary Magdalene was a sinner. She was the epitome of evil. Not because she herself necessarily was that evil, but because she had evil within her. And she was restored from it. Not fully completely healed. Out of the pit. Now what is her response in regard to that? While Jesus is hanging on the cross, while he is being crucified, the people that he had spent his last three lives with, or his last three lives, his this people that he had spent the last three years of his life with, 
for the most part, had abandoned him. 19 verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Look at the people that are left. You have Jesus' mom and his mom's sister. Then you have this, this person, Mary, the wife of, wife of Clopas, and since there's not much said about her, what we can assume is that people in this time that are reading John's gospel, his original audience, would have known of her. We don't know much about her. And then who else is there? Mary Magdalene. And then the most beloved disciple, as John says himself. The people standing at the cross, the people standing there witnessing Jesus experience the most excruciating death were those that loved him most. One was his mom, one was his aunt, one was the pure lady, the other was John. And then you have this woman who once had seven demons in her. Standing there witnessing Jesus' experience Experience what it felt like to have seven demons in you. Experience excruciating pain. Not just physical pain, because remember, on that cross, Jesus took on the sins of the world. And Mary is witnessing that take place as he breathes his last. And so we see this unprecedented commitment from Mary, that she was restored. She had received much forgiveness, and now she has much love as Jesus recounted in that parable earlier. But this commitment doesn't just stop either. It's not just like Mary sees and dies and says, okay, I'm released from my commitment. I can go do what I want now. Look further on. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. To understand how significant this is, you have to understand the, the Jewish calendar. Because for us, early in the morning would be 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning. You know, right, right around sunrise. The Jewish calendar is a lunar-based system. So the day starts around 7 o'clock in the evening. So one day ends at 7, and the next day begins at 7. It's moonrise, essentially, not sunrise. So the Sabbath day would have began about 7 o'clock Friday night and ended 7 o'clock Saturday night, because that was the Sabbath. So Jesus would have died about 3 o'clock in the the preparations for burial, putting him in the tomb because they couldn't be around a dead body when Sabbath started. And so from 7 o'clock on Friday night until 7 o'clock on Saturday, Mary was nowhere near that tomb. As a, as a Jew, you're, there's regulations on how far you're allowed to travel on a Sabbath. You're allowed to go to synagogue and that's it. And synagogue in this time would have been very close to your home. So she would traveled to synagogue, came back, time weeping, mourning, 
this person that had given her everything from 7 o'clock until 7 o'clock. And then as soon as Sabbath was over, it says here, on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb early when it was still dark. This isn't sunrise service. This is midnight service. The Sabbath day ends at 7 o'clock Saturday evening. She was likely there before midnight, before what we call midnight. She didn't sleep. She didn't go to bed and wake up and say, okay, off to go, off to go take care of Jesus now that it's a beautiful morning. She was in so much mourning that immediately, as soon as the Sabbath was over, she went to the tomb to care for Jesus, to serve Jesus. That's an unrelenting commitment. That's a commitment that none of his disciples have. She had to go get Peter. She had to go get John, the beloved disciple. Because they weren't as committed to him as she was. So what is it that breeds this commitment? Mary's commitment to Jesus is simply a result of his loving restoration. A restoration significant. She had much forgiveness and as a result she produced much love. Much commitment. To the extent she didn't sleep. She went and served immediately. Last week we, we looked over verses the, the rest of verses 1 through 10 and seeing about Peter and John, they came to the tomb, they, they witnessed the, the fact that the tomb was empty, the stones had been rolled away, no one was there, and, and, and they would have been thinking in their head, is it possible, did he really come back, is, is he really not gone? But then in verse 10, it says that the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. They left the tomb afterwards, they saw it was empty, and they maybe he's back. Look at what verse 11 says. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying. One at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Be because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And, and I don't know where they've put him. And having said this, she turned. And saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Woman, she said to her, he said to her, why are you crying? Who And supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. So the disciples, they leave. Peter and John, two of the prominent disciples, and Mary speaks. We, we see all throughout this, and all throughout these two chapters, Mary's commitment to Jesus as a result of her receiving much forgiveness. But now she's weeping. Now all of this sorrow has finally taken hold, and she is weeping. He's gone. He's not even here in his final place. He, he, where him so much that then when he was in death. And she's filled with sorrow. 
And her eyes well up with tears so that she can't even see. I don't know any of you that have been hurt emotionally or physically and you, and you just you start sobbing but you, you can't see. You can't you can't talk right. This is what Mary's situation is. You know, she is weeping. She can't talk right. She can't think correctly. She can't see. And she looks into the tomb. And there's two figures there. And she sees that people working. Where is my Lord? Where is he? What have you done with him? And she turns around and she sees another figure. And she just thinks that it's a garment or something. What have you done with him? Where is he? And Jesus said to her, Mary. And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he said to her. Her mourning turned to joy. At one point, Mary was weeping uncontrollably, so much so she couldn't see. She couldn't think. And in the next, just one voice changed everything. Jesus called her. And that level of, of sorrow that she had turned into unprecedented joy. Mary's recognition that had resurrected from the dead brought her an unprecedented joy. A joy that was so, so emphatic that she immediately went and clung to him. And we don't know how long she was clinging to him before Jesus says, don't cling to me. I mean, it's likely that she would have held on to him forever. My Lord has resurrected. The one who restored me has come back. The one who gave me life is here. I It, it wouldn't have just been right away that Jesus says, don't cling to me. It would have been like one of those death grips where she was hugging him so hard that his eyes are starting to pop out of his head, you know, like you see in cartoons. That this God who restored me from my bondage that I owe everything to is back. I don't want to let him go. What we see from Mary that we're called to have. This, this realization that the God who lovingly forgives us, that restores us from the deepest, darkest pits of our human nature, resurrected from the grave after taking those sins with him to the grave. And, and I don't think that we have the type of response that Mary has enough. Mary is overtaken by joy because she had committed her entire life to serving Jesus. And now that he is back, she's not letting him go. And I wonder, do we share in Mary's response? Now, I think sometimes after we make that decision to follow Jesus, the statement, I'm following Jesus, becomes sort of redundant. It, it loses its meaning. It loses its emphasis. 
For Mary, it didn't. For Mary, she had been restored from a lot. And so to follow Jesus, to commit to Jesus, give her life to Jesus, meant that. It meant that she wasn't going to stop following him. It meant that she wasn't it meant that in everything that she did, she was going to cling to him. Even as soon as he died, she was by his side. Is our commitment the same? When we realize that Jesus is offering to restore us, that Jesus has given his life for us to take on our sin, and we say, I'm going to follow you, do we have the same commitment that Mary did? Do we give our life to him? Do we give our unrelenting commitment to him? Are we filled with an unprecedented joy every time we think about the fact that our God conquered the grave? Or have we turned this into a routine, mundane truth? Something that we just go through the motions with because we talk about it every Sunday. Something that just, we grew up believing, so I Has it become so normalized to us that the joy isn't really what it once was? For Mary, that wouldn't have ever been possible. Because the only thing on her mind was the fact that I was once inhabited by seven demons. I had the grips of hell around me. And he got rid of that grip. And I'm giving everything to him, no matter what. And I hope that's the same sort of commitment that we have. That we cling to Jesus because he gave everything to us. And you know, if, if Mary didn't have this type of commitment, it's hard to tell what the gospel, how, how the gospel would have been passed down. Because Jesus says, don't cling to me, but go and tell my brothers, and tell them I ascending to my father. And she went and announced it. And that fact there is one of the most profound defenses of the gospel. And you might think that's silly. How is it that Mary going and telling her brothers, her disciples that he had risen from the dead, how does that defend the fact that the gospel is true? Because in this time period, a woman coming to claim that something had occurred didn't happen. The word of, of a woman wasn't really taken at the standard of a man. And so the fact that the disciples are so emphatic holding to the truth of what took place, that they said, no, Mary told us. All four Gospels, or all, all the Gospels recount the fact that Mary was the one that told them. That holds to the truth that Jesus' resurrection is real. So Mary's commitment, Mary's fulfillment of what Jesus asked her to do is what helps us establish the fact that everything in this book is real. That it is accurate. That it isn't some concocted story that was made up to try to get people to, to, to stop sympathizing with either the Pharisees or Romans. This is what happened. Jesus restored and forgave. And he did it to People that seemed beyond help. To see people that seemed beyond repair. And in so doing, 
he received much love from people like Mary. I ask you to ponder to yourself, does he receive much love from you and me? Do we dwell on the fact that we've been restored from, from our sinful nature? That even though we don't deserve to be in God's presence, we have been given the opportunity to be in his presence. Because if we don't dwell on that fact constantly, then the joy of his resurrection will become routine. It will become mundane. And so I encourage every single one of us to be like Mary. To let the fact that Jesus forgave her, restored her, take center stage in everything we do in an unrelenting commitment and joy of serving Christ, of serving his church, of constantly dwelling on his resurrection. I hope we're a church that remembers what we've been restored from. I hope we're a church that remembers who we once were. that I'm good enough. Got to make sure that I do what I need to in order to maintain God's love. It makes the joy of His resurrection the commitment that we have routine. And it never should be. But when we dwell who we once were on the condemnation that we deserve, the realization that He has forgiven us and restored us, and offered us a his presence. Well, the joy that we would find in that should never diminish. If you've given your life to him, I hope that you take this to heart. That you don't neglect to remember that joy. That you don't neglect to think back on what he has restored you from and given you in eternity. And if you haven't committed your life to following him, I urge you to do so. If he can restore Mary, he can restore you. And let that restoration bring you unprecedented joy. A joy and satisfaction that you will not find in anything else in this world. No material possession, no job, no amount of money, no, no amount of, of possessions can ever bring you the joy that you'll find in knowing that God loves you and restores you and gives you an eternity in his presence. And if you haven't found that, I urge you to take the steps to find that. I know I would love to talk to you about it. Our elders, our deacons, we, there's so many people that would love to talk about it. And I urge you to come forward and do so. I'm going to close in a word of prayer this morning. And as we Close in prayer, I just want us to stand together in one joyous unison and a realization of what Christ has done for us in giving him praise and glory for his resurrection and for the restoration we find in that. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we can't thank you enough. An eternity spent in your presence Thanking you and honoring you won't be enough. Won't be what you deserve. You've restored us from a brokenness. You have made us righteous, even though we aren't. God, help us to follow you 
unswervingly to commit to you constantly and to always find joy and excitement in the fact that we have been restored by you. Help us to live our life like Mary in a commitment that never ceases. Thank you, God, for loving us, for forgiving us from so much. Help us to love you in return at all times. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.